Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Tax Tuesday. Hopefully you can hear us well. Welcome to another fun day of bringing tax knowledge to the masses. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And we're here to answer a lot of your questions and to go through a whole bunch of good ones today. If you're out there, just let us know you're alive. Just go to chat and say, I'm alive. Let us know where you're at. Howdy. DC, howdy from Florida. I am alive. Yo from KC, Santa Barbara, Galveston, Georgetown, Grand Rapids, Lehigh. Oh, I'm jealous. Long Beach, New Orleans, Houston, CA, Dallas, Yorktown, Vancouver, Washington, Chicago, Montana, the Triangle. In North Carolina, got properties there. Orlando, Tucson, New Jersey, Colorado Springs, Portland, Oregon, California, Santa Rosa. We got a lot of folks on from all over the place. There we go. Monterey Peninsula, beautiful. Randallstown. Right now, today we were only 100 degrees in Las Vegas. It was down from 118 yesterday. So we went out of the oven and we're in the warmer. I'm sure we'll be, they'll crank it back up. Yeah. Yeah. So. Jeff and I are withered husks of human beings. We've been copiously watering ourselves. Hey, you have a whole bunch of accountants on. We have Ian, Elliot. We have a whole bunch of folks on. Who else is out there? Troy, Troy. Elliot. Well, I know Elliot. I said Troy's out there. Christos is out there. Dana's rolling around out there. Then we also got Matthew and Patty and Jen Guanlo. I think we have Jen on. Let's see. Too many people. Minnesota. All right. We have Massachusetts. We got a few stragglers. All right. So welcome. We're going to jump in. Let's go over the rules because Jeff and I love rules. First off, ask questions. We do answer questions live, but if you want to make sure that you get it answered, put it into the question and answer feature, which means go on in and you'll see that there's a chat feature and there's a question and answer feature. And the question and answer, we will make sure that we get to you we have a whole staff there to, to answer. Let me see if I can get to my little, you see how it, <laughs> my, whenever we start recording, my little mouse disappears and I can never find it ever again. It's just like disappears and goes, maybe it's over here. No. It's like yeah. a wall though. So I put a nice big box that says I'm being recorded right over our screen. So we can't read anything. And then you can't see the mouse. This is great. So I'm just going to shoot this at some point. All right. So anyway, so we you can ask your questions live. Go out into chat sometimes. Uh, put out some sheets. There we go. It won't show up. It's like it's mean. It likes to do that. Anyway, so you, but you could also an, ask questions during the week or at any time during the two weeks in between these sessions at uh, Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. And by by all means, take advantage of the fact that you have uh, CPAs, accountants, attorneys answering your questions right now, not just Jeff and I. Jeff's a CPA, I'm a tax attorney, but we're, we're, we're here to answer your questions, but you can, get a, you can get a written answer. It's supposed to be fun. We do answer quickly. We do answer, mm-hmm. which is unlike a lot of accounts because oh, it depends. 
we'll give you an answer. And if we say, hey, there's some hedging in it, like there's something that we don't know, I'll just say, hey, you know what? Send us, send us in a question during the week. I'm just now I'm just obsessed with finding this. I thought you almost had it. I almost had it. It's like right there. There it is. Now we popped up. It makes it into a dot. And you can just see it. It looks like a fly is about to land on something. All right. So there we go. Let's go over the questions now that I could read them. All right. Because otherwise, (laughs) I'd just be guessing. All right. What do we got today? A... An SMLLC, which stands for Single Member LLC, that earned twenty thousand dollars in stocks, does it have to pay self-employment tax? So, uh, what the, we'll, we'll get into that. But the SMLLC, you'll see that vernacular used, uh, and uh, all it means is that it's an LLC that's going to be ignored for tax purposes. So, we really care about who owns it. Uh, how do I borrow against stock versus selling the stock outright? To my knowledge, can I use a short-term rental up to 14 days or 10% of the total rented-out days? I'm a REP, real estate professional. Can I take all the bonus depreciation year one, or must it be prorated based on my personal versus business use? Good question. Sounds complicated. Easy to break down. Right. I bought a stock, USO, in 2020 and received a K-1. Woohoo! That's always fun. The stock price is more than doubled. Good, but I never sold any shares. Why do I have to pay tax on the gain, which I never received? What happens when I sell that stock? We'll go over that. Can we defer capital gains tax or spread across multiple years? We'll certainly answer that one. Can I 1031 exchange from a single house rental into a percentage group rental? And we'll have to dig into what that means. Or to a partial interest in multiple rentals. So these, these are all good ones. These are going to be fun mm-hmm. to kind of dig into. If I have a home in an LLC and have a property manager on the property, can I rent out the home to myself, but have my employer pay my rent through the property management team? This is weird. It's like I live in the house, but I have a property manager living there. <laughs> Whoever floats your boat, right? My accountant informed me that if I make over $150,000 annually, not be able to claim any deductions from short-term rentals. Can you explain this? Also, if I don't provide substantial services for Airbnb, do I still need an LLC C-Corp for management to decrease my taxes? I would like to report the income on Schedule E while writing off active short-term rental income from 100 material participation hours. So we have a lot lot going on in that one. So we'll dig into that one. That'll be fun. How does an LLC that is disregarded entity differ from a living trust in terms of estate planning? What if you have both? How do I use both in estate planning? It's a great question. This will be a fun one. I like those ones. Are the gains in a traditional, and this is SDIRA, just remove the SD. It stands for self-directed IRA. Tax the same as the rest of the money in the self-directed IRA when doing a conversion to a Roth self-directed IRA. So when you when you when you remove the SD out of there just say hey is an IRA with capital gains tax the same we'll, we'll dive into that one. it'll be kind of fun. If I buy a new house through a 1031 exchange and I make it my personal residence after 1 year of renting it out how long do I need to occupy it to qualify for the full section 121 capital gain exclusion when I sell it? 
A good question. Can the 1244 rule be applied to an LLC that does that has not filed income taxes in over 10 years? I just love these. We will get into what the 1244 rule is, and we will encourage you to pay your taxes right now, <laughs> just in case there's any IRS out there. Right? We will not be giving out your identity on that. Right. All right. So a single member LLC that earned $20,000 in stocks, does it have to pay self-employment tax? Most likely not. The income is most likely coming from capital gains, interest, dividends. None of that is subject to self-employment. The only time I could see it is if you're a trader. I don't uh, think you'd ever have self-employment tax on capital gains, period. But that gets reported on Schedule C. Okay. Only the only the expenses. Oh, the forty-seven ninety-seven. You're correct. On the income, it's still on Schedule D, and it's like it would still be portfolio income. I can't think of an instance when it wouldn't be. Yeah. Unless you have a limited partnership that you're investing well, even, in. Even then, you wouldn't be. You wouldn't have self-employment tax ever because you'd be a passive partner no matter what. But it wouldn't yep. be on. It would still be on. It would be on Schedule E under those circumstances. So I'm going to change my answer to highly unlikely <laughs> that it would have, you would ever have self-employment tax. Yeah, I don't think you have to worry about it. That's one of the beautiful parts about portfolio income. So, in the hierarchy of all taxes, ooh, number one is the income that you make by sweating. You know, working your butt off, getting up and doing the job. And you get hit with not only income taxes, but you get hit with self-employment tax or social security tax or FICA, whatever you want to call it, old age, disability, survivors, hospital insurance, all that good stuff. They crush you with it. Yeah. It's actually 33% of the total taxes collected in this country are, are employment taxes. So it's it's not a small amount. Compare that to all corporate taxes together is 7.8% of all taxes. So you're you're collecting a lot more in this tax that nobody ever talks about. So you have your your the sweat of my brow income that you get crushed on and then you have everything else. Everything else is pretty much you'll never have to pay uh, self-employment tax or social security on. And that's your portfolio income which is royalties, dividends, interest, capital gains. And then you have your passive income, which is rents or businesses, income from businesses in which you do not materially participate. Did I miss any? Nope. All right. So yeah, so when accountants, when they look at stuff and it sounds all complicated and you realize there's only one type of income that gets crushed with that self-employment tax, then we just say, yeah, can't see that. Not with stocks, not unless you're running the company. How do I borrow against a stock versus selling the stock outright? Well, if we're talking about borrowing against a stock to invest in other stocks, that's usually through a margin account through wherever your stocks are at or your mm-hmm. brokerage account. But I think they're talking about stock loans. Yeah, security-backed line of credit. So go to your brokerage house and you say, hey, I got all this stock. It's like Elon Musk does this. This is part of the big thing that they wrote about in ProPublica or whatever it's called, where they were saying, look, these billionaires, they don't pay any taxes and they make all this money. He hasn't made any money yet. He hasn't sold his Tesla stock, right? It's just sitting there. So they'll loan you based on its value. So they usually loan about 50% of value and they're securing the underlying shares with that loan. So it's borrowed money, not taxable. How do you do it? Security back line of credit. If you have crypto, you go to like Unchained or DeFi or one of these others, they'll loan you money on your crypto too. And that way you're not selling it. Because if I sell it, now I have a taxable event. 
So if I don't want the taxable event, borrow against it. Sorry, I hobarded that one. No, not at all. I like to. Speaking of hobarding, hey, Infinity Investing. Let's see if I can pop it up. There we go. I didn't realize it was a number one bestseller in financial engineering. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but it sounds really cool. It has engineering in it, so it must be good. Hey, guys, if you feel like it, I would recommend that you do because it took a long time to write and it's actually good. You could actually get Infinity Investing and we break down how to basically build a good passive income machine. Somebody says, great book, read it twice. We like that. Anyway, so there's a whole bunch of reviews that are getting up there. It's only been out for a month or so. So still picking up, but we did get picked up. If you guys know how Amazon works, we got the Vine and we have some reviewers that are hitting it. It's nice that they don't say, man, that sucked. So yeah, see, there we go. So by all means, feel free to grab it. So it's an easy read. It's just a lot of stories. And then it's step-by-step how to build it. And you can go to infinityinvesting.com and you can get a free membership and immediately implement everything that's in the book. If you want to go buy a bunch of real estate, you'll have to pay to, to, to increase it. But for the most part, anybody that's getting started, you don't have to come out of pocket. You have to come out of pocket. The I think, what did they do? Kindle. Kindle today, it must, it must be on special, 99 bucks or something like that, or 99 cents, excuse me, 99 bucks. <laughs> yeah, I just add zeros to things. So the book itself is 20 some dollars. You can go out there and grab it. But anyway, by all means, go in there and do it. And then if you do, please give an honest read because it helps other people decide whether it's right for them. All right, let's jump in. To my knowledge, can I use a short-term rental up to 14 days or 10% of the total rented out days. I'm a real estate professional. We're going to break this down, guys. Don't worry. Can I take all the bonus depreciation in year one or must it be prorated based on my personal versus business use? So Jeff, can you make... Uh, yes. So there are special rules that once you your personal use exceeds at 14 days or 10%, then your expenses are limited to your income. So really bad thing. Basically, if I'm not using a property much personally, it's mm -hmm. going to be an investment property and I can write the whole thing off. Yes. But if I use it more than 14 days or 10% of the total rented out days. So if I only rent it for 10 days and I am in it for 10 days, I'm more than 10%. I have to prorate. You can take the bonus depreciation but you're still going to have to do, I'm pretty sure you're still going to have to do some pro allocations between the personal use and the business use. It's going to be pretty insubstantial. So if you, if you use it for 14 out of, say, 300 days, what, 5% of the, your total expenses, mm -hmm. that doesn't prevent you from taking bonus depreciation. You just get a piece of it. So you're yeah, going to you, get 95% right. of it, right? Yes, you're still going to get the majority of it. And being a real estate professional, it's going to allow you to deduct it with no limitations. Also, if these, going back to that first question, if average rentals are less than eight days, then you may have that deduction anyway, mm -hmm. real estate professional or not. Well, if you're, so if you're a real estate professional, that just means that we're in that passive rental category, but you can, you don't have to treat it as passive for loss purposes. It's an ordinary loss. So if I have a whole bunch of bonus depreciation and I have a huge chunk of loss that's a passive loss on a typical rental, now mm -hmm. I could I could take it as a and offset my W-2 income. So in in English, I'm blabbling here, 
if I end up with a $10,000 paper loss because of my bonus depreciation, I took a house that would normally be depreciated over 27 and a half years, and I broke it into its components, and I accelerated the depreciation on about a third of the house is about what it comes down to. Third of the improvement is personal property, and I write it all off in one year. I can do that. It's called a cost segregation, and I elect to bonus it. I could use that money to offset all my other income. So, like, if it's me and I'm and I'm and I'm working as an attorney and I'm making uh, W-2 income, I'm getting wages, and then I have this this big loss from this property that I have, then I can use it against my W-2 and lower my total tax just with paper. I think that's what they're looking at. They're saying, "Hey, I like to use the property too." So let's use a scenario. Let's mm-hmm. say that it's rented 200 days and I used it for 40 days. Yes. So what proportionality would I use? Uh, you use a 20%. 20%. 20% would be personal. Yes. So 80%. So I, I would calculate it as though it's 100% rental property and I would only get to use 80% of that because I use 20% of the time personal. So it makes sense that I wouldn't get to treat it as a rental property for that portion that I use. Good question though. Mm -hmm. And we unpacked it. Let me make sure I didn't, must it be prorated? Yes, you have to prorate it. All right, so question and answer. Bought a book on Kindle, 99 cents is a great deal. I guess it is 99 cents. Must be because they're doing uh, Prime Days. Is it still Prime Days? Um, I think it's getting close to the end. Uh, So it must be on sale. So yes. 99 cents is a great deal because it's normally not. <laughs> Today is last day for Prime Day. So there you go. Better tell somebody if they want a 99 cent, go get it. There's a whole bunch of fun stuff. Now everybody's going, real estate professionals shouldn't matter with short-term rentals. Those are separate buckets, right? Unless you have a short-term rental with longer than seven days average. Not really. You want to explain, there's three buckets for Airbnb, right? You mean starting with the Airbnb with substantial services? Yeah. So So there's an Airbnb with substantial services, and that's actually 30 days or less. And what kind of substantial services? Like cleaning? We're talking about things that you do while the place is occupied, Mm -hmm. not between occupants. And it's got to be services for your clients that are staying there cutting the grass or doing the linens after they leave, that none of that's going to count. Taking the garbage out. So it's going to have to be things like a hotel would do or a resort. I, I will write these down while you're doing it because I could just tell people are going to lose their minds. So alligator, somebody told me the alligator thing. So less than 30 days. Yes. With substantial. Where does that end up on a tax return? That actually ends up on Schedule C. Ooh, Schedule C, self-employment tax. So that's kind of nasty, right? We don't necessarily like that. All right, what's the next one? The next one is less than seven days without substantial services. And where does that one end up? That ends up on Schedule E, much like a rental, but it's not considered a passive activity. It's a non-passive activity. So it's not passive. 
means there are no limitations on your losses. Yep. Which means, which why I think Susan was saying, hey, what, would it really matter because you're going to have, in both those cases, you're going to have non-passive loss. So you're not going to have to worry about real estate professional status. Uh, the third bucket is if you have an Airbnb where the average rental days is greater than eight with mm-hmm. no, no substantial services. Greater than eight days. Oh, your signs are backwards. Oh, I thought it was the other way. So this is less than? That's less than. Somebody corrected me last time. I don't think anybody really knows. I'm just going to say that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So so greater than eight days, no, uh, no substantial services equals rental passive. Oops. I need to put another S in there. Passive and a Schedule E, right? Correct. So it's subject to the passive limitations we talk about. Now, why is all this stuff important? Because that substantial services are what kicks you in the, the teeth. And somebody says, you're using the greater than symbol instead of the less than. See, somebody else is picking on me. Use for less than. All right, so you guys are smart. You guys actually know this. Less than. The alligator points to the left. See, I don't know this. I don't know. Somebody's probably told me the alligator thing 20 times. And I'm always like, I just think immediately of alligators eating something. I think what they're doing is the alligator has eaten the number, so it's getting less and less. All right. That could be. (laughs) Alligators. Alligator points to the left. Alligator points. But see, when I think of an alligator pointing to the left, I'm thinking of its mouth open, going to the left. Mm. I'm just making excuses at this point. All right. That's enough of that. Let's jump in. <laughs> looks like an L. These guys, the L shape for less. Oh, now I got it. Wow. That was pretty good. I, Matthew got me. Thank you, sir. As I, it, I was this many days old, or today I learned, I heard what till means on Reddit now. T-I-L. Oh, okay. Today I learned. All right. I bought a stock, USO, in 2020 and received a K-1. The stock price is more than doubled, but I never sold any shares. Why do I have to pay tax on the gain, which I never received? What happens when I sell the stock? So, Jeff. You're not paying tax on the gain. That will come when you sell it. What's really going on here, USO is uh, United States Oil Fund. It is a limited partnership, a publicly traded partnership. So as a limited partner, you get a K-1. So is it a stock? It's a publicly traded partnership. It kind of is a stock and kind of isn't it? It's like a partnership interest. So yeah, you're buying a partnership interest and you get a K-1 for your share of income and losses. Mm. Now, to make matters worse, this is an oil company or an oil fund. So all those numbers on page one on the front of your K-1 probably don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. You have to go into the detail of all those pages behind it. And that's where you're going to find the real nitty gritty. So what you should be, let's let's assume that you understand what everything means on uh, those K-1 pages. Honestly, if you have a substantial investment in this stock and this USO, I'd probably go see a CPA. Well, so I was just thanking somebody else who gave me the L too. You guys wrote it right next to each other, Matthew, and this fixated on the alligator at this point. You also would add whatever you received to the basis, right? Yes. So if I'm getting allocated, because I may not receive any money, they're going to allocate me revenue out of a partnership flows through to me no matter what and increases my capital account. 
mm-hmm. which is my basis. So when I do sell, yes, you're being allocated, like let's say it doubled in price, yay. But what we care about is how much did you get allocated of the total amount? How much did you personally receive? 20 bucks? Great. Then you take your basis, add the $20 to yes. it, and then calculate your gain. And yeah, it's a little nasty surprise. And there's lots of publicly traded partnerships floating around out there. Uh, and, that, and that's a really good point that any income you're recognizing now and being taxed on is going to increase your basis. So when you do sell the stock, it's not going to be the same amount that you paid for it. Mm-hmm. Can we defer capital gains tax or spread it across multiple years? I'm going to give you the two methods I'm aware of, and then I'll let you help work the rest. <laughs> It's um, like you know me. Uh, the first is the 1031 exchange that we've talked about. If it's real estate and you want to defer the capital gains on that, you can basically trade your property for another property uh, through the old qualified intermediary. Real estate only, though. Right? Real estate only. And we do have another question about this later on that we'll talk a little more about the 1031. The other way is through the qualified opportunity fund, where it can be any kind of capital gain. And if you invest in the uh, qualified opportunity fund, qualified opportunity zone, and there's there's several other and you're paying, qualifiers. You're going to pay tax on that deferral, though, in what, five years? Five years? Is it 20, five years? 20, 2026. 2026, yeah. Yeah. So, and let's just do this one. Your capital gains, what really matters is when you receive the, when the sale is and when you receive the funds. So if I am selling... Uh, any long-term asset on an installment sale, meaning between more than one tax year. So I sell something and it's payable over six months. So some of it's going to be in 2021, some of it's going to be in 2022. Then I would recognize part of it in 2021, the part that I received, if I elect to treat it as an installment sale, yes. right? I have to make an election. I could also opt out. So for example, when if, if you sold your house, you may say, hey, you know what? I have a capital gains exclusion under 121. I can, uh, you know, I'm not going to pay any tax. So I'm going to go ahead and, and opt out of the installment sale, even though I'm carrying the note on it. You know, so if I'm carrying paper on it, some of you guys have heard that term, but just a fancy way of saying, I'm, I'm going to get paid over time. So I didn't get paid yet. So you could spread it across multiple years that way. And then really creative planners will go ahead and say, like, if you have a large capital asset, They'll say, hey, let's do a deferred sales trust where they will put it into an LLC and they'll sell it to an irrevocable trust. They'll elect to step up its basis. And then in a year or two, like you don't want to do it really close together because the IRS could collapse it and say, hey, the only reason you did this was taxes, even though probably the only reason you're doing it is no, it's because you're 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 passing it on to heirs and things like that. You want to. You want to get best dollars for your sale, right? And if you don't have to worry about the tax, it, that, that changes things. In which case, you could step up the basis, sell it, not have any capital gains recognition, but you would be paying it on an installment sale over the rest of your life, for example. So the kids could be the beneficiary of that trust. You could be getting a note based on the fair market value that you sold it for, and then it turns around and sells it. Even if it's close to the same amount, you'd have this big pile of cash in there that is in, in essence just there to, it's buying you back out. And uh, usually you put a kicker in there that if you pass away in the interim, the, the note's forgiven, it's called a skin, but we won't get into all of that. And then the last one that I would hit on is don't sell it. Cause if I have capital gains, 
depending on what I need the money for, it might be wise to borrow against it, especially nowadays with the interest rate so low, and let it step up in basis when I pass. Now, that's a weird concept to think about, but if you're 80, 90 years old, then I would say it's something that you should absolutely consider because you could avoid the tax entirely. And if you have to pay a little interest to avoid a big tax hit, especially if you're like in California or something, right. do it. You know That tax could be 30%. So that's something you do. And that's where you sit down with a guy like Jeff or a guy like me. Last one is if you're doing real estate, you may want to look at cost segregation because capital gains are reduced by the amount of recapture. Some recapture is not uh, taxable. So, for example, if I have broken down personal property at five years and it's, and it's beyond its five years, there's not going to be any recapture in that. I guess it would push it all to capital gains. So that may not, but you want to, you definitely want to have somebody take a look. If you have a sizable amount, then what would you say? Like uh, 500,000 or something like that, maybe have somebody eyeball it first to see if there's a better way to, to sell it. And one more idea I'll throw out, it's not really deferring capital gains, but it's avoiding capital gains, is you have, if you have appreciated property, especially stocks, you may want to contribute them to charity directly. Great one, great one. So yeah, you don't see the income. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You you get a pretty substantial deduction for the fair market value of the stock, Mm -hmm. not what you paid for it. Yeah. So if I bought Tesla at one fifty and sold it for two hundred. I'm contributing or contributed and, it at two hundred. And think of this: so you you bought it for what did you what did you pay for Tesla? One fifty. And what is it worth? Two hundred now. All right, so you have fifty dollars again. If I sold that, I'd have fifty dollars again that I have to pay tax on. If I donated my Tesla stock to charity, assuming I held it for over a year, I would get a two hundred dollar deduction. Plus, the charity, if they sold that any time in the future, has zero tax. Mm-hmm. The only time you would have tax in that scenario is if you paid yourself for running the charity. But a lot of you guys, I know my clients, you guys are charitably inclined. You guys give more money away than just about any group I've ever seen. Yep. A lot of you guys, it's like, I, I would guesstimate that our average, because you do the tax returns, but you'd probably say at least 10%, probably closer to 15 Yeah. Our guys, our people are givers. I put our clients up against anybody because they really do. We have a lot of folks that tithe, a lot of folks that just are voracious givers. Speaking of givers, here's a freebie. Tax and Asset Protection Workshop Live. The next one's coming up July 17th. There's a link. They are free. This is probably going to be Clint and I. I have no idea where I'll be. I'll be traveling around, but I'll hop on. It's always fun. We did a really cool one this weekend. It was on clients, Frank and Sherry. No. Candelaria. You know, they did the they do the recovery residences and the NAR certification. So we did one all on NAR certification. So if you guys are into shared housing and some unique ways of really doing some neat stuff that that's that changes society, I'd welcome you to watch the replay at least. It's pretty interesting. Do a lot. They, they just do a lot up in Washington State with King County Jail System. And like, we don't need a bunch of jail cells for a lot of these folks. A lot of them are just, there's a lot of drug issues, there's abuse issues, and 
you don't need to put him in a jail. You could put a, a bracelet on him and put him in a, in a, in a residence and <laughs> it's probably better off. It's a lot cheaper. But anyway, there's, there's a lot going on in that realm. And then there's the clean and sober living and things like that. Keep, keep, it, keep them away. All right. More. Can a 1031 exchange from a single house rental into a percentage group rental or to a partial interest in multiple rentals? Would you look at me? I'm looking <laughs> at you, Jeff. Actually, uh, I know this one because I've, I've had to, I dealt with a couple. But So a 1031 exchange has to be real estate. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. And it has to be for an undivided interest. However, there's a way around that. It's called tenancy in common. So you can buy through your tick interest, you can buy a portion of a skyscraper, office building, houses, whatever. I think it gets a little more complicated if you're buying into multiple rentals. I think in that case, it would probably have to be what, through a partnership or- You can still re- do it. You can still okay. do it as long as you're a tenant in common. What you can't be is a partner. So even in the tenant in common, what's really important is that they don't just call it a tenant in common and treat it like a partnership. You need to have an undivided interest, small percentage in that property. And, and that's, that's a really good point. So when you're a tenant in common, you report it on your tax return because only individuals can be tenants in common. Uh, you report your share on your tax return. You may get reports from the, the people handling the property managers and things it's, like that. And it's got to be name to name. So right. that's one of the things is that, I mean, you, you, you don't have to be an individual. You, you could be a, a disregarded LLC or something along those yes. lines. But you're going to have to go name to name. So if I have a single family rental and it's in an LLC, that LLC needs to be the, the tick, the tenant in common in the other properties. But it has to be of greater value. Mm-hmm. You can't have boots, so you can't have a bunch of debt relief. And yes, you could do a partial interest in multiple rentals. But I will say this, use a very good 1031 exchange facilitator because this is not your garden variety, what they're used to dealing with in a 1031 exchange. And you really want to ask questions when you enter. You want to interview that you're qualified in a media if it's something other than just, I want to trade this house for that house. Mm-hmm. How about, have you ever done this before? <laughs> you ever done this? No, but I read about it once. <laughs> mm. That's a great feeling. You've done this? No, have you? That makes two of us. <laughs> Let's see. But don't worry, I'll represent you in the audit. That's Famous last words, right? Let's see. They announced at the event if you receive a replay. Usually we do a, you know, run to you. Like, we, usually we have a replay. It always depends on the group. But there's probably some floating around out there. You should see. You want to look at some of those, the, the previous. Something says, actually, I'll just answer this and we'll go to some of the questions. Looks like they're just pumping through them. Can job, I? That's a good job, guys. We're doing a fantastic, like our the group that does the tax Tuesdays, like I don't think you guys realize that it's usually a lot of professional time going into these. Both we answer tons and tons of questions during the week. Nobody's getting paid for it. I mean, I guess you get paid in different ways. You reap what you sow. So we like to answer questions, but it's always interesting when you get the people that are like, can you do this or this and this and this? They're answering lots of questions. Then they get a little pushy and you're like, you're not a client. <laughs> I'm doing this. I like be nice. It's like somebody. All right. If I have a home in an LLC and have a property manager on the property, can I rent out the home to myself, but have my employer pay the rent through 
the property management team. I thought this was really interesting. I had to kind of work through this. So this is a second home. This is a different home. This is not my home. This is, I was trying to think of this. And the first time I read it, I was like, my house, if I put my house in an LLC and hire a property manager, I'm like, why would the hell would I do that? But whatever. And here's how I kind of worked it out in my head, how this could work. So feel free to shoot it up. That your employer is not you. The employer is a third party that has reason to pay you for your use of the home. Other than a personage allowance under a nonprofit, I'm not aware of any way you could get a house without having to pay tax. If it was work-related, like you were... If you were say, off... Say you had a home in another state. If Yeah, so, so if I was working remotely and I came for a temporary housing situation, I believe it's a number of days, I forget that. Okay. But if I go to some place for a set period of time and, I'm, and I still have my own house and they let me use it, that's one thing. But... It doesn't have anything to do with the property manager. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Yeah. If we cut a lot of this out, first off, you can't rent to yourself. It's one pocket into the other. And that, that's going to be, IRS says no, just plain no. You can't rent your house to yourself or to your business. So you see any way of making this work or? Mm. I, I, I can't. I always, I look at these things and I'm always trying to figure out what, what they're, what they're trying to get at. So I'm like, all right, I have a house. I have a rental house, put it in an LLC. The property manager is a red herring to me because it doesn't matter whether there's a property manager. Mm -hmm. It matters as to where does that property end up on a tax return? Can I rent it to myself? It's income to myself with no expense. If it's my personal property, it's income to myself and expense if I'm renting it to somebody else, which means it's like subletting it. Can my employer pay my rent. It depends on what benefit I'm getting because then it will be taxable to me. So again, I'm going to have a, depending on what they're doing, I, but you're not going to, there's no tax reason you would do this. Yeah. The employer to do this would actually have to be able to justify it on mm -hmm. their books why they did it. Yeah. All right. Question and answer. There's a really good one up here. Are you familiar with the difference between personal goodwill versus business? Goodwill is generated by that person working in that business. So, so John must be, I'm assuming, and maybe Dana, you're answering this one. Maybe you know this off the top of your head. Personal goodwill is ordinary income to the individual, whereas oh, the business goodwill is a capital gain, I believe. Yes, you're right. absolutely And right. so if it's the business goodwill and the business did something from a tax standpoint, if you are selling it, it makes a huge difference. If you're buying it, I would imagine that if I'm buying it, goodwill is generally what, 15-year property? Yes. Would personal goodwill still be, it would still be depreciable over 15 years? Right? I think it would, yeah, it would still be over 15 years. It makes more of a difference on the seller side. Yeah, so the seller getting it. And, oh, she says, <laughs> I clicked on the answering live option for you. Do you know, Dana, is that, am I saying it right? Does anybody else, Christos, anybody else know that one? Because I'm pretty sure that I'm right, but I, I'm like a wavering right I, I know you're right about the ordinary, a personal's ordinary income. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, like you said, is it, is the business getting that money because of Jeff, mm -hmm. which what they would equate it to is really like a non-compete to you, are you sticking around the business. And so we can't say, oh, it's all goodwill so that they could write it off without an adverse consequence to you. How have you seen that divide it usually? Is it what the company's worth with me and without me? Mm-hmm. 
basically that you actually have to have an appraiser come out. And so, yeah, so John is the seller. I would want more business goodwill Mm -hmm. because it's capital gains treatment to you versus ordinary income treatment to you. And I cannot think of a single situation where the capital gains would be more. Somebody says, I'm correct. Elliot, you are a good man. Hey, Elliot, what's, what's the big definition of personal goodwill? See, I'm going to ask questions while we're sitting <laughs> Oh, here. we can't sit here quietly. And wait no way. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I like allocating more income to things like client lists, things that I can treat as capital gains rather than non-competes is going to be ordinary income. Uh, this personal goodwill is going to be ordinary And that non-compete is going to be ordinary income to you, and it'll be immediate Correct. deductible. It'll be deductible to the buyer as, uh, as an ordinary necessary business expense. But yeah, personal goodwill is an asset that is owned by the individual, not the business itself. It's generated from the personal expertise or business relationships of an individual employee or shareholder. He says it so much better than I did. Troy actually did that. Troy did. Yeah. Good job, Troy. So, Elliot, you got scooped by Troy, hooray Google. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. You guys can have a. You guys are both awesome. Nice, Elliot. Sometimes it's all about knowing where to find the answer and not exactly knowing the answer. Mm -hmm. All right, let's keep going on since we're plugging along. Oh, you could always follow Anderson on social media, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can always go to aba.link forward slash and then your favorite social media because, heck, you may as well plug in. The YouTube stuff is actually really good. So Patty's sending it all out. YouTube for sure. Twitter, I know we're always posting tax stuff on. LinkedIn, good. Instagram, good. Facebook, probably more. But I like the YouTube stuff personally because I like the videos and I like teaching them. But you really can't go wrong. All right. This is a big one. Oof, look at this thing. We're going to have to get our shovel out on this one and really dig, dig into this. My accountant informed me that if I make over $150,000 a year, I'd not be able to claim any deductions from short-term rentals. So first off, that has nothing to do with short-term rentals. The $150,000 sounds like active participant in real estate. But we'll get into that. Can you explain this? Also, if you don't provide substantial service for Airbnb, do I still need an LLCC court for management to decrease my taxes? I would like to report the income on Schedule E while writing off active short-term rental income from 100% 100 material participation hours. So do you want to try to whack this thing into pieces? Well, let's start at the top with short-term rental. We kind of want to assume that he means under eight days, but maybe they don't. Without substantial services. Without substantial yeah. services. So if it's under, if it's seven days or less, average stay, I disagree with your accountant you would be able to schedule non-passive loss. I also, yeah. And I think we're a little confused here that we, he says, I would not be able to claim any deductions from STRs. I think he means loss. I think he means losses too. But then they talk about material participation. So what they're saying is it's schedule it's non-passive mm-hmm. and you're materially participating in the business. So what happens is you're not in the business of renting anymore when you're doing Airbnb, when you're doing short-term, you are in, the, you are in a trader business. Mm-hmm. And as a result, those losses would be ordinary loss, non-passive loss, right. because you're actually in a business. Jumping down to the portion about 
do I still need an LLC C Corp for management to decrease my taxes? I like the idea, especially if you, if you have several properties that you're doing this with, of having that C Corp because the C Corp can deduct things that you cannot deduct. We like running some income through the C Corporation, and then you can do your medical expenses there. Mm -hmm. The corporation's going to have corporate meetings, things of that mm -hmm. nature. And you could actually lease to the corporation and separate off some of the liability, both as the host. So there's been claims made, everything from discrimination to wrongful conduct by the host. It separates it from the real estate. And then there's also real estate claims. Like one of the most famous ones was a, the rope swing in Texas, where there was an Airbnb with this big old rope swing out in the uh, yard and somebody got on the rope swing and the, the branch cracked and fell right on them and killed them. So stuff like that still happens. You isolate that liability through the use of the entity and insurance. And just know that Airbnb, by the way, all short-term rentals, that's a different type of insurance than your typical landlord insurance. So all of those things, yes, you still isolate it. Yes, you can still do it, but it's not like it, it, having a, a C-Corp, for example, in the mix will definitely lower your taxes because you'll get, you'll get income taken off of your return. You'll still have that loss on your individual return, but you'll also have the means to generate more tax-free income to yourself. So what if we structured this a little differently? I, I assume right now that the, this person is renting through his own individual account. Mm -hmm. What if we pull that Airbnb out of his account and have the C-Corp rent it out or even an S-Corporation? Yeah, generally what I would do, the, the structure would look like this. Property, you guys can look at my beautiful mug with my, let's see, you can see my little bull. That's bull market. Almost looks like a bull. But let's say that I put my piece of real estate into an LLC and I lease it to my, my corporation that's going to be my host. Mm -hmm. And so my host is going out with all the third parties and it's keeping my real estate away. My real estate would always be passive because I'm going to rent it on a monthly basis to my corporation. So that way I get a really good benefit. Yeah. I can pay a management fee if I need to to the corporation as well. But generally speaking, it was, it's enough just to, to work the rents. So I could say it's like, it's like a, a lot of folks do. They'll go rent properties and make them into Airbnbs too. So I think it was the Trump's kids that did it. They rented one for like, I forget what it was, 10,000 a month. And they were going and breaking it off and you know making $30,000 a month on it. And the landlord was all mad saying, hey, you violated your lease. It's like, show me, where does it say that? You know, no subletting. I'm just letting people use it. <laughs> There's all sorts of fun stuff we've learned about Airbnbs in the last five years. All right. That was a bizarre one. Sometimes you get these long ones and I'm always like, yeah, do we really want to bring that in? And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of pieces. We, we, we just sometimes have to line out certain parts of it to get mm -hmm. to the meat of it. Let's see. How does an LLC that's disregarded entity differ from a living trust in terms of estate planning? What if you have both? How do I use both in estate planning? The LLC is for liability protection. I don't consider it a estate planning tool. I mean, I guess it can be if you have a family LLC or a family flip or something like that where you're gifting interest to children or so forth. I would actually do what is suggested in the second question is have both. I would have the LLC owned by the living trust. What say you? 
Yeah, that's generally how you're going to do it. You know, the easiest way to think of a living trust is it's a, you're carrying on baggage for you. So you're rolling around, you have a little roller that you're carrying around during your lifetime. And there's two ways that the living trust really comes in and helps you. Number one is if you can't carry your roller anymore. So you have somebody designated to, to help you with it. So if you're disabled, somebody's there already in, in, in your document. Everything's already in the trust. One of those items that's in the trust might be an LLC. And it goes like this. Let's say that I have toothpaste. And I also have, like, let's say it's my wife and she has a beautiful dress. The last thing I'm going to do is stick toothpaste right next to her dress because the toothpaste, say we get into a plane and it explodes, it's going to get all over her dress, right? So we're going to put that toothpaste in a container. I used to use a Ziploc. The Ziploc is an LLC. So usually when you have the LLC, it's holding something that could get all over your other stuff like real estate. It might be holding some cash to make sure the cash is protected case it gets wet, you know, things like that. But that's going into the suitcase. You still need the suitcase. From a legal standpoint, the reason a living trust works is it's a contract. And that contract does not need a judge's involvement when one of the parties dies to that contract. So if I have a contract with myself that says, hey, during my lifetime, I am the grantor of this document, I'm the trustee, and I'm the beneficiary. And basically, I just say, but if I can't act as the trustee because I, I, I am an incapacitated, Jeff steps in as the trustee. And that's all it says. So if, I get, if, I, if I'm incapacitated, Jeff automatically pops in. Now I die. So I can no longer be the beneficiary anymore. We are now left with the trustee, Jeff, and the beneficiary, which could be my written instructions. It could be Jeff for all that matters. Jeff does not need to go ask a judge, hey, could you please order this removed? He's already there. He's in control of it. When we own things individually, we can't do that because once I'm dead, now the court's going, huh, we need to do a court order as to who has control of that. So that's why you end up probating wherever you own something that's in your name. So that LLC, at a minimum, let's say you had property in four different states and you had it all in LLCs, at least you avoid probating in each of those four states because you don't own anything. The only thing you own are the membership interests in that LLC. Now, if I take those membership interests in those LLCs and I put them in my suitcase, my, my living trust, now I don't need a judge anymore. And voila, you avoided the whole probate mess. That's all it is. I have something in my name and it's with a third party, they're not going to change it unless I get a court order, right? Now, if it's not in my name, if it's Toby Mathis trustee of the Mathis Family Trust, then they're going to say, well, actually the Mathis Family Trust owns it. Who's authorized on behalf of the Math? I don't need a, a court anymore. It says right here, Jeff is the successor trustee. Great. Here you go. And they're off the hook. What if there wasn't a trustee? then they would say, who's the beneficiaries? Can you guys elect one? Let's say there were no beneficiaries, no nobody. Then they might just give it to the court saying, hey, we don't know what to do with this. And the attorney general at that point would contact the parties. So I hope I understand that. Anyway, somebody put it there. They were, they were being nice to us. So I read that and I said, hey, let's see. I submitted a question, but don't see it listed. How is a holding LLC able to file as a partnership if it's a single member? 
is a living trust of a married couple whose name is on the K-1. Sedarian, this is what's funny. You have a choice when you're in a community property state. Generally speaking, a husband and wife are considered one person. If you are in a separate property state, they're considered a partnership. And even if you're in a community property state, you could still choose to treat it because the IRS says, hey, you could use the state of whatever. Like they don't care. You want to be a partnership, it's two people. You can do so. But if it's one person listed as the trustee, now you can't. So you'd have to be both listed as trustees of your living trust. <clears throat> but if it's a married couple, hopefully you are. Otherwise, you're going to have marital issues because he's going to say, hey, why are you on there? I should say, oh, why are you on there? No, no. Actually, that's if you want to avoid having to file a tax return, you're in a community property state. That's how you do it. You have one spouse who still owes a duty to the other. So you, you could do that. And you could actually do it. You could have it be separate property or excuse me, community property. You could have it be one person owns it for purposes of the LLC, but then convert it to community property again inside the trust. It's kind of fun. It makes your head spin. Let's go on. Are the gains in a traditional self-directed IRA? So you're directing an IRA. It's not in a brokerage house. It's probably in a, with a custodian. Are the gains taxed at like the rest of the money? when you're doing a conversion. So basically are the capital gains inside of that, let's say you had, you bought Jeff's Tesla and it ran up and you have a whole bunch of capital gains. Are they taxed just as ordinary income when you convert that to a Roth? And the answer is simply there, there is no such thing as capital gains in IRAs. They don't pay tax. They're exempt. What they're actually taxing you on is distribution amounts from the IRA. And when you do a conversion from an IRA to a Roth, they're considering all that money distributed that you convert, which becomes your basis in the Roth Because IRA. you wrote off whatever you put in there. Yeah. So if I contribute, what is it, 26000 I can contribute to my, I'm going to use a 401k. I'll say 6000 for my IRA. Mm-hmm. If I contribute that this year, and it goes, and up. I pull, and it goes up and I pull 10000 out, out because it went up to 10000 mm-hmm. then... The IRS is section 401A says that's all ordinary income. It's all taxable too. So that's why you're going, hmm, hmm. I thought it was always made sense to do that IRA thing. Hmm. And another thing I want to point out is I see a lot of people do Roth conversions where they take everything in their IRAs and throw it all into Roth. You don't have to all do it all in one year. Here's the rule. Your taxes are going going to go up, and it's going to be a little while. By all means, go ahead and convert. If your taxes are going to be down when you retire, don't. The average tax rate is goes down when you retire. So I see all these conversions, and I'm always like, well, conventional wisdom would be don't convert. But you know, you you should get the deduction. It's worth more to you at your highest tax rate. And I'll see people in really high tax brackets think they're going to make all this money in their Roth. And so they convert and just get killed in taxes. And it almost never materializes. Mm -hmm. I've seen it a few times, but it's, it's rare. And I'm like, your averages are not with you. Again, if your taxes are going to go up, the Roth is better. If, If your taxes are going to go down, a traditional is better. And I see people in the, the height of their career, they're making a ton of money. And they're doing conversions. And I'm just looking at them going, it's going to take a long time to make up that tax hit, man. Now I'm going to talk about the other side of the coin. If you're having a crappy year, can I say crappy? Yeah. Okay. 
if you're having a crappy year, let's say you did some big cost segregations. You got all these losses you're taking. Now convert. Now convert. Because your taxes are going to be higher when you retire. Yeah. If your taxes are going to be higher when you retire, now's a time, good time to convert. If your taxes are going to go down when you retire, don't. Simple. If you can create losses, then you're going to be at a really low tax bracket. It's hard to beat zero mm-hmm. or 12 or you know even a 20%. Good one. If I buy a new house through a 1031 exchange and I make it my personal residence after one year of renting it out, how long do I need to occupy it to qualify for the full Section 121 capital gains exclusion when I sell it? I, I like this question. So we're assuming that you're exchanging a investment property mm-hmm. for 1031, but you buy a new property and you do need to rent it out for at least a year. Mm-hmm. 12 months, 365 days. Don't shorten that. Technically, you don't have to. Technically, you don't have to, but it seems like we, most of the cases are going... We like appearances, though. Yeah. It needs to be an investment property. You need to live in it for five years, or you need to own it for five years after that Section 12 or 1031 exchange. Before you can even qualify for 121. Yes. 121 has an absolute exclusion, which is the 250000 or... 500000 for using a property as your primary residence for two of the last five years prior to selling. I'm going to throw a curveball at you in here a second. But you cannot use 121 for five years after a 1031 exchange. So if you sell a house in a 1031, buy a house in a 1031, and then move into it, you have to wait five years from the date of the the sale before you're even eligible to do the 121. Then even when you do, this is the part that you just have to get the pencil out. and it, You're going to have a period of non-conforming use. And what that means is whenever you have a rental property, let's say you had a rental property for 30 years and then you moved in it for the last two, you don't get the 121 exclusion for the full amount. You're going to get a proportionate because you have 30 years of non-conforming use out of 32. So you're going to get a very small percentage of that exclusion. You're still going to get it, but in the way they do it, it's not the exclusion that they use that percentage of, it's the gain. And they say, here's the amount of the gain that's being attributed to the period of time that you resided in. So if you're going to do that, just know that there might be a portion that you don't get to use. There might be a portion and you have to live in it for five years, but realistically, you're going to get 80% 80% plus of the gain will be eligible for the 121 exclusion. But if you did the 1031 exchange in the first place, what do you think you're going to do five years from now? You've got to do it. You'll probably convert it back into a rental. 1031 again, it, you know, turn 1031 it again mm-hmm. and do the same thing again. You know, the money's big enough. You just keep doing that. And then you die and you step up the basis. Okay. Well, where was your curveball? That was it, the, oh. the, the, the uh, non-conforming use. All right. It, another thing you can do is... It's kind of a slow curve. A slow curve. Change up. Change up. Let's say we're talking about this house you're selling is your personal residence. You couldn't have 1031 it. You'd have to convert it. You'd have to rent. convert it to a rental for a year. Mm-hmm. But that's not non-conforming use because it's between the period of time when it was a personal residence and the sale. So it's but two then you could do years. that 1031 exchange, run out the new home for a year, mm-hmm. and then move into that home. Correct. That's what we teach. I've heard that. Yeah. We've heard, I've seen it once. 
That's the funny thing. We would teach you get like you have these people with two million dollars of of gain, and they're like, I don't get to use hardly any of it. And you're like, well, this is what you do. And then you never hear from them again. Like I assume that they go and they take it <laughs> to their. But I'm like, I want to see it. Like I want I want the letter saying, hey, thank you for saving me half a million dollars on a on a free show. <laughs> it's like hey, you're welcome. Uh, one thing I would caution you uh, when doing this is you don't want to intimate and you don't want to tell people that during this exchange that you're planning on using your new house for your residence. IRS gets, yeah, IRS can't just smell that and they're going to blow it. Well, they're always going to look over the, the substance over form. And so they're going to say your form was correct, but the substance was trying to defeat a tax. You're still allowed to do tax planning, Mm -hmm. tax avoidance, no problem, but don't invite it because they don't like stuff like that. They just, they had an opinion today. I don't know if you saw it. They denied a Christian 501c3. They denied it its exempt status because they believe that Christians are more affiliated with Republicans. So you see the IRS do stuff. It's patently wrong. I thought like, we had this happen about 10 years ago. That was Lois Lerner. And yeah, they yeah. targeted conservatives. Out of so, Cincinnati. So <laughs> you're going to see it again. You're seeing it again. Happened today. But they said that Christian organizations are associated with Republicans and therefore they're going to deny the exemption because of political activity, even though there was no political activity. They're absolutely dead wrong. But this is why you don't invite issues with the IRS Mm -hmm. because they're wrong a lot. Like when we call them, how often are they wrong? I think that they did a study and it was like 70% of the time they're giving out erroneous advice. You're not even allowed to say, well, they screwed it up and I relied on them. You're not allowed to rely on them. So they can, there's, they can be wrong all the time without consequence. Yes. So, yeah, if I call you up and you're an IRS agent and you tell give me advice, that advice is worthless. Zero. All The only time we ask them a question is because we're gauging their temperature. And then they'll write stuff and they'll have a treasury ruling like they did over the, the ridiculous stuff with the PPP loans where finally Congress acted. Usually you don't get the benefit of Congress acting, but we'll just say we don't agree with you. <laughs> And we'll file a form on our return that says we're taking a contrary opinion because you guys don't know what you're doing. They like that. You can rely on the private letter rulings, but they're really expensive. Yeah, Most IRS folks are great, but you're still, I had a IRS agent scam. They said, oh, it's a tax avoidance scheme to use a pension plan. And the accountant didn't know what to do. It was in North Dakota. The accountant CPA was like, oh, I guess we shouldn't have done it. It was a 401k. It was back when it was profit sharing of any purchase plans. But it's like, you're just wrong. That's just stupid. But their IRS agents, sometimes they get a little, they have a blind spot or they just get a little willy nilly. They just, sometimes they're just, they're just not nice folks. And they may just be having a bad time. Maybe they got booted from the house or sometimes had a car overworked. And that's certainly the case now. Or they just don't know any better and they think <clears> they're right. Nobody's pushed back on them. So like, I don't want to beat up on them. They're mostly really cool. We don't get to deal with them very often. How many audits do we have last year? Like thousands and thousands of returns. Yeah, we had about 6,500 returns and maybe a handful of audits. Less than 10? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think we're seeing a little bit of an uptick, uh, but still. You get letters, somebody forgets to put on a K-1 or something. You'll get that type of thing. Audits are rare, guys. And, and again, going back to what you what brought this up is it's appearance. It's mm-hmm. don't make yourself 
don't don't throw yourself out in front of the bus. There's no need for it. Yep. Don't poke yourself in the eye. Or what we used to say, I worked for a criminal in criminal court for a judge. I was clerking there. And he said, Toby, nobody is in jail for talking too little. Is there a way to live in a property purchased in a 1031? Absolutely. And that once you're through the first year, then you could go ahead and move into it. And that's not even a hard and fast rule. We just say for sake of appearances, at least six months, better off a year, just to show that you intended to buy it as an investment property. All right. Last one. Can the 1244 rule be applied to an LLC that has not filed income taxes in over 10 years? You know, when I read this question, I thought this was actually a tough question. And then I realized I was missing the point. Well, first off, LLCs don't pay taxes. You have to say how it's going to be taxed. So that LLC could be taxed as a disregarded entity. It could be taxed as an S corp. It could be taxed as a C corp. So let's assume it's an LLC being taxed as a C corp. All right, so it's an LLC being taxed as a C-Corp. Then you have to look at 1244, which says you can take up to $100,000 of loss from a C-Corp. The shareholder can- From the loss on their stock. Yeah, it's the stock loss rule. So the easy question then is, do LLCs have stock? And they do not. I know. That's the only difference between an LLC tax as a corp and just a traditional corp. So let's say I have $100,000 of loss and my LLC taxes a corp. Mm-hmm. Then I would take a capital loss. Capital loss. Which means I would be able to use it against my ordinary income, $3,000 a year, or I could offset my other capital gains. Right. Otherwise, yeah, you could do it as if it was a regular C-corp, then you get an ordinary loss. Let's supposing this was an Inc mm-hmm. instead of an LLC, and they haven't filed their income tax return turns in over 10 years. I don't know this, and I doubt if I could find anything. How how would you know you had a loss? I was going to say, I think IRS would question whether or not. You couldn't. I'll make it easy because you could have a loss. Where would your loss be? So they have no idea. In order to write off your loss, you actually have to file the return showing that you have. There's a gross revenue rule that you have to prove where your Mm -hmm. gross revenues are coming from. And frankly, you haven't proved anything by not filing returns. But, you know, and not filing a return, by the way, is gross misdemeanor. (laughs) It could be a a felony if you did two years in a row. So file your tax returns, even though it's rare that people get called out on it. Just if they wanted to mess with you, that's what they would pick on. They're going to they're going to say, oh, technically, you know, we have here we have 10 felonies. So let's get some money out. If your tax is a C corp or an S corp, you are required to file a return every year that it's in existence. Yep. All right, guys. We went a little bit long, but not horribly. No. So, yeah. (laughs) Yes. I thought it was actually four o'clock. I was like, oh, it's four. No, Uh, I got carried away. All right. So, YouTube, by all means, go in there and subscribe. We love our people that are on YouTube. We reach out. We give a lot of information. Go to our podcast. If you like listening to Tax Tuesdays, if you like these, we record them. We break them into pieces, and you can always go in there and listen to some old episodes. They're fun. If you like replays, you can go in and listen to the Platinum Portal, and you're always in there. And somebody says, the presentation was powerful. Thank you so much for your presentation. God bless. We like that. God bless you, too. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. We always have a good time. Uh, if you have questions, by all means, uh, email them on in. We pick, we get hundreds, so we pick a few, usually on Mondays. <laughs> usually they're waiting for me to grab, I just grab a, a bunch and throw them on there. I don't necessarily edit them, but I like to look, so it's kind of cool. 
There was no grammar spelling errors in this one that I saw. I actually ran it through the because I'm always so annoyed. There was a couple of ands and ands, but like the really major stuff, I was like, okay, I'm not just going to leave that. But I try not to change the context because I don't know if I'm screwing it up or changing the meaning. So usually I'm reading it like three or four times. Some of you guys write kind of funky. Let's be real. We're all like, we're all that quick email stuff. <laughs> anyway, so Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. Visit us on the internet, just at Anderson Advisors. And I guess we'll see you back here in two weeks. In the meantime, go out and think of some questions, throw them at us. Jeff likes the really hard questions. I like the easy ones. So just put for Toby, if it's going to be easy, if it's going to be annoyingly hard, just say, Jeff, this is what I really want you to answer. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 